Greg Porper, co-writer, director, is on the show today. Thank you for joining us. He's here to talk about Don't Tell Larry, his feature film he co-wrote and directed with John Shimke. Great cast, Raul, including Ed Begley Jr. He plays the retiring office CEO. Patty Guggenheim is Susan. You saw her in the trailer. Uh, she's the ambitious underling, along with Kenneth Mosley, who plays Patrick, her lovable colleague, and Keel Kennedy is Larry. What do you think of just <laughs> this is hilarious. This is going to take off. This has legs. Greg's resume is so long. Okay, but just let me give you the short, short story. The guy has several web series under his belt. He worked on Dope Sick Nation. He was on the NBA production team, which created a documentary as part of the ESPN's 30 for 30 series, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that series. And so much more. So Don't Tell Larry is a funny, quirky, and unpredictable movie. And it is a screenwriter-driven film, which is what you're going to cover today, right? The role of the screenwriter. If you're going to make films in an ensemble of cast and crew and different people doing different things, you know, got to know what the screenwriter does because there's a very specific lane that you need to be in. You know, James Hart always said the screenwriter is the job maker, right? He's the job maker. It's because, the idea. Yeah. It, but it's more than that, too, and we'll go into that. Okay. Because a lot of people get stuck on yeah. that idea and never go any further. Right, right, right. But once you write, he says, once you write the end, it's the possibilities are endless for jobs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah incredible. The, the classified ads go up, right? <laughs> L.A.-based writer, director, producer Greg Porper is on the show to talk about him and his co-writer, director John Shimke, wrote this movie, Don't Tell Larry. It's a three-act structure hitting all the marks by Page Ten Man. Okay, and then his characters and their unpredictability, his corkboard. He talks about the corkboard for keeping track of critical plot points and engineering the plot points. Greg Porper, straight ahead on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. So initially, I mean, this is a, a passion project um, of ours. We had originally created a web series together called Don't Tell Larry. And so the movie was based on a web series we made together. So because we made that together, we decided we wanted to work together on this project as well. John has his own projects he works on. I have a lot of you know my own scripts and projects I work on as well. But because there's this character, Larry, that we both just really just... He was a really fun character to explore and is someone that we wanted to expand into uh, a movie. So we had him in the web series, this character, Larry. Now we have him in, his, in a movie. And John and I then went back and forth for a long time to try to figure out how do we create a cohesive, wacky, outrageous, a really fun uh, vehicle for this character. And so we came up together with some plot points. There was a lot of us just throwing ideas against a wall. Um, ultimately... It's John suggesting ideas and me saying, no, that doesn't work, and vice versa. And ultimately, we come to some sort of agreement when we say, oh, you know what? We really can work with this. So it's kind of mutually coming to terms with certain plot points, characters. And then we worked, um, we wrote the script together. Sometimes we'd go off and write our own pages. Other times, we would both um, virtually use a final draft, the shared function, so we could both be working on the same script in two different locations. And we kind of went just back and forth, in, you know, 20 plus drafts. There was a lot of rewrites in this script. So on your web series, was this an office thriller action as well? It was just a very, it was a much more lighthearted um, 
office comedy about two coworkers who have kept these little secrets from their third unhinged coworker. And everything that was alluded to that they did to this poor guy, Larry, happened off screen. So then you took all of that, and I was deconstructing it as I was watching it. Uh, page 10, everything changes, just like they tell you to do, right? I mean, uh, she was all set to become CEO. I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, nope, I hope you understand, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because we, we definitely wanted to follow, you know, the a typical three-act structure. We wanted to put our own unique spin on it, and so we definitely had our story structure points we wanted to hit. If you notice too, about almost at the exact halfway point of the movie, the tone even switches. And that's, that's intentional because I just think that's just what makes a story engaging is to kind of loosely follow those rules. Now we like to break a lot of rules too. And you know, some could watch our movie and you know, they might root for the anti-hero more than the hero. And I think that's something that makes our film unique as well is that we didn't fully go by the confines of like, what does Hollywood normally do? But at the same time, we still felt it was important to follow just a generic story structure so that when you're watching this movie, there's a very clear you know, beginning and inciting incidents, uh, a very clear midpoint, a very clear climax and an ending. And so um, we feel really good about how it all came together. Yeah, Susan takes a little bit of a dark turn, doesn't she? <laughs> She does, and I think one of the things that was really interesting when we had some early test screenings for this movie was there were certain people watching this movie who really rooted for Susan. There were some people who really didn't like Susan. There's people who rooted for Larry. There's people who rooted against Larry, and I love that. I think it's great that um, we can have characters who can be seen as a hero or an anti-hero, and you still might like them anyway, and you still find yourself caring for these characters. Even if you don't agree with maybe the decisions they make or you do something differently, you, for the most part, you can actually understand why they made some of the decisions they did. Now, at a certain point, someone would say, wow, you've gone too far. Um, but that's what makes a movie really interesting is to have characters cross that line. And they break, you know, they go out of their comfort zones and they break the rules of what's socially normal what or what one should do in a situation. And I love that. Yeah. So, but I loved Patrick throughout I mean, he was like the go-to guy, right? Yes. He was the moral compass of yes. th throughout the program. And so when you were writing that character in there, did you intend for him to be the moral compass? We were going back and forth with what his character's role would be. What was really interesting was that when Kenneth Mosley came on board, who played Patrick, um, originally Susan and Patrick, our two leads, were not really close. They were just people who worked together in an office and didn't know each other that well. But when Kenneth met Patty, um, John and I realized, wow, these two have a really strong connection. And, Absolutely, a chemistry. And they, they knew it too. It was pretty inevitable. I mean, even when they were, you know, <laughs> hanging out, uh, you know, before we were filming, we did like some rehearsals, like they're arm in arm already, like locked up. And we actually, like a week before filming, rewrote a lot of parts of the script to have these two characters actually start off being closer. Mm -hmm. um, and so that Ken being very charismatic and he, he himself, I mean, every, I think all of our leads are scene stealers and specifically now we're talking about Ken. I think he steals a lot of the scenes that he's in too because he just is very friendly and naturally through his performance, I think he made himself, um, he fully embraced that role of being a little bit of that moral compass, but ultimately is still kind of excited by some of the shenanigans that Susan's getting herself into. <laughs> She does, she does do some strange stuff, but it's all for that job, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, that ambition, right? Yeah. So Ed uh, Begley Jr., very, you know, I've seen him in so many things. I didn't have any idea, you know, that you snagged him for this film. Un great, kudos. Thank you. Ed, I mean, Ed came to us 
through our casting director, Ricky Masler. When we had written the script, Ed was actually on the shortlist of people we wanted to play this character. We knew that it was not a sure thing. It's just really hard. I mean, Ed is a comedic legend. He's been in, you know, over 300 movies and TV shows spanning decades. He's been nominated for Emmys. He's in all of these, so many of the Christopher Guest documentaries. I mean, if there's a movie or a show, Ed has probably appeared in it in some capacity. And so um, when Ricky read the script, you know, we told her about Ed. She said, you know, she has a connection to at least get Ed to read the script. And she got him to read her. She, she told him about it. Ed read the script and he said, I want to do it. And we got, it was really, I mean, th that was like when our project kind of got to the next level. Because obviously when you make a movie, it's great to actually make it. But now when you have someone of his caliber, with his experience, with his reputation, it just elevates the production and elevates how we're perceived. And I mean, clearly he brought his A-game to this and, and everyone who was on set with him, there was just an excitement there that he just was, you know, a part of this project. And then he became an executive producer or was he executive producer and then bought into the, the, the character? That was kind of um, bringing him on board was, to, you know, to act and then also to be an executive producer. And a lot of the two is he's been very active as well um, with myself with doing, you know, press for the movie and going to help promote it as well. So we're just really lucky to to have him on our team. Wow. Very fortuitous, yeah. right? Really yes. helps you along. So let's go back to some of the writing in the script and all the turns and twists because there it really, I mean, there's some funny stuff when, and I guess the most... The sweetest thing for me, the sweetest scene, is when she really just stops for a moment and realizes that Patrick's having a moment, or he needs a moment, okay, because they just survived, all right? They're facing death in the eyes. And so, you know, and she gets him to say, you know, I'm a hero. And it's just the sweetest moment. So how did you come up with that? Because that's a really kind of a, a moment in time that kind of illustrates the heart of the movie. Yeah, well, thank you. For, thank you for saying that. So I think what was interesting with his character and his little secondary or even tertiary storyline with this childhood action hero, the idea here was, you know, with Patrick's arc, we always wanted it that he was kind of living in the past and he needed to learn how to grow up. Mm -hmm. And so even in this wacky world, we didn't need it like a moment of heart and we did need him to kind of also help Susan just pause because <laughs> she just is nonstop moving forward and spiraling wildly out of control. Yeah. And someone needed to be there to kind of slow down and Patrick does have this moment, but at the same time, he also comes to terms with the fact that he himself is, you know, he considers himself a little bit of a loser and needs a pep talk and just is like ready to give up. And Susan, who does not want to give up, tries to encourage him. And at the same time, I do think that Susan has a little bit of an ulterior motive because she wants to encourage him to not give up, to also help her continue her goals. So there's a little bit of... Um, she's, she's selfish. Oh my, she is driven. A, yeah, she's definitely... I think it, it leads to her and driven. When someone wants something, mm -hmm. sometimes you're willing to do whatever it takes. And I think this is an example of Susan doing that. But at the same time, it's also a moment that allows Patrick to grow a little bit of a character. And it also gives moviegoers a little bit of a break in the movie because we are really fast paced and there's a lot of action and it's intentionally nonstop. So just for a moment, we can exhale before we have to then hold our breaths again for what's about to happen after. Right, and I, okay, so I've gotta say at the end, the very end, that is like a shocker. I did not expect that and it's just like, but it sets you up for a sequel, right? I mean. Yes, without really giving uh, too much away, we wanted to allow ourselves to potentially let this movie grow beyond just a singular movie. We love the characters that were created. We love the world. We intentionally dropped a lot of 
references and allusions to things that could happen in the future to some of these characters that um, sets ourselves up. If we wanted to continue the story, we can, but at the same time, if there was never a sequel, this movie as a standalone still works in what I think a fantastic way. You know, it does. There's some, I mean, there's some sophomoric action in there. <laughs> he acknowledges it. And there are some sophomoric scenes. In but I think the audience that you're going to go after with this, it hits, you know? I mean, a couple of points I started laughing out loud thinking this is just silly. It's silliness, right? But it's funny. And so I think that you're onto something with that. Um, you know, who is your audience? So it's a great question. I, we initially thought our sweet spot would be men, 20s and 30s. Yeah. What was really interesting through just test screenings, we found that it expanded. There was a lot of men in their 40s who enjoyed it. And here's the shocker too. A lot of women who watched us really enjoyed it and much more than we thought. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to make something that would be enjoyed by men and women too. But I think myself being in my 30s, John being in his early 40s, we were writing the movie that we would like ourselves. This is the movie. This is my favorite movie ever is Don't Tell Larry. I made the movie that I wanted to make. It's, you know, it's, a, it's humor, there's some sophomoric humor in there, but also there's some darkness, what I think there's some really just funny laugh out loud moments and there's moments that will shock you and ultimately this is not, um, you know, the world right now is really heavy. Like, like it's extremely heavy, it's dark, it's depressing. Um, when making this movie, I wanted it, we were making this during COVID and obviously so much has happened you know, since and before and after, but the fact that this movie is not political, it's not you know, calling to the realities of our world, it's intended to be an escape. And it's an entertaining escape. And it's just 90 minutes where you're watching this movie, you're not gonna be thinking about anything else. And that was one of our goals. So that's why I think that it's, it seems to be resonating with a bigger audience than we thought. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, it actually, I think it's actually a little more mainstream than we initially thought too. Because um, I've had some of our test screeners were, you know, in their 50s and 60s, and they were there was references that they enjoyed. There was, and also I think the draw of Ed Bagley Jr. helps too. There's a lot of people who've known Ed for a long time, and we definitely have some younger viewers. I think college students would really like this a lot. And um, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I, I'm, and I, I think it's um, just something that. For those who just want to have a fun time at the movies, this is the sort of thing that you would really enjoy. Yeah, it's a wild ride. Let me tell you, it's a roller coaster for sure. And um, I know the press release mentioned some twists and turns and thrillers. And I mean, it lives up to the press release in that regard because there's some stuff that you, I mean, you know, when Granny goes down the stairs, it's like, oh my God, what is that? Yeah, there were some pretty ridiculous things that we were going back and forth with. And in order to make these things work, we really had to make sure that our characters emotionally were at a place where it could be justified, the crazy thing that was happening. And so that was a lot of trial and error. That's why there was over 20 drafts of this script because we worked and reworked so many times, you know, the, not just the plot, but our characters' emotions. And everything was a puzzle and we changed characters' goals at different points in time. And everything, if you change one little thing on page 10, it's going to affect three other references later on. And it's a puzzle piece. So you remove one little thing, five other things get moved out of place. So it was definitely a challenge. I think the benefits of having um, a writing partner on this was that we really could bounce ideas off of each other. We helped motivate each other to, you know, when we had to do a page one read write, it wasn't something that we were going in alone you know, we had another person to always bounce ideas off of. Yeah, that's very helpful. So let's talk about some of those, the plot points that you, now, is your writing style that you will actually do index cards or do you do a chart or do you use the storyboard in final draft? What exactly did you guys use? 
I had used in, in my in my home, I have a cork board with different index cards. So I, you know, the, some of the ideas we were talking about, I put in like on the card, like the, the event in the movie, the, the moment or the scene mm-hmm. and would put like, put it in a general spot of where we think this can go. I think w- this movie was not written in a traditional manner. There, there's a pee scene in this movie that will stand out with you. When you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. In the web series, there was also a very similar pee scene. And we actually, we love that scene um, because of just the, the wild reactions we got from it. And we said, okay, we want this in this movie. How do we reverse engineer some plot points to build to get to that point? And then also to how do we, you know, build off of that right. while also not losing momentum. And so this is not how I traditionally write a movie or, a, you know, pilots. I like to write a lot of pilots, but we actually had just some other plot points we knew were going to happen. And then we worked around those to build up to those points and to, to lead into those points to make them organically fit. Right. You had to leave the, the joint, the marijuana joint somehow and mm-hmm. get that in there. And right. so that, yeah, it was inter- very, very interesting. And just one final thing. It's almost kind of like the beginning of what could be a cult. Well, yes. So that was interesting. So that's actually something that helped, I think, Ed get on board to the movie, too, was through Ricky Masler, our casting director. At the time, she wasn't really looking to take on more projects, but this came across her desk, and she actually referenced, she's saying, this feels like a dark horse comedy that can actually make a lot of buzz, have a cult following. She feels like it's a almost a slightly darker New Age Napoleon Dynamite, where there's this character that the character himself can become its own, you know, have his own cult following just because of how quotable he is, how ridiculous he is, and how he he can really stand out in a sea of other movie characters. When there's so much out there, it's really hard to stand out, but we feel that actually with this movie and with our character, Larry, we have that ability to stand out. Okay, so the San Diego Screenwriters Studio thanks you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, Greg Porper for being on our show and sharing your experience and the way that you write with us. Of course, thank you so much, Gail, for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. I'm glad he talked about the three-act structure because we're here as screenwriters, and it's always good to see that somebody's sort of self-aware of the screenwriting process because it's something that gets forgotten and also something that gets confused. So the job of the screenwriter is story control. Your first job, once you have that brilliant idea for a story, is to create those plot points. You know, how are we going to get from the opening scene to the closing scene where we fade to black and see the end? And an interesting thing that Greg talked about was the scenes and the scenes that contain those those plot points, right? And that's the scenes that had to be put up on the corkboard. And there's about 30 scenes in a feature-length film. Uh, We've talked about having 28 index cards. I did a little segment on 28 index cards. Those are your 30 scenes, okay? I I use 28 for for a reason, but we can just say roughly 30 scenes. At the same time, within those 30 scenes, we're going to cram in 60 to 90 plot points. (laughs) And if you say, where did all those come from? Uh, Lest we forget that there's not just an A story, there's a B story, a C story, a romance story, a sidekick story. So you need to, uh, let's just say, fit 90 plot points into 30 scenes, which means you need to stack them. 
and you need to stack them correctly. And that's what the screenwriter is responsible for, (laughs) is figuring out how to take those 90 plot points and fit them into 30 scenes without feeling forced and artificial, because that's that, of course, is the danger when you just try to cram stuff in to cram it all in. That's true. And when you're trying to work those secondary stories in, you, I have found that I have to go back and start breadcrumbing certain things, fitting them in, even if it's just a line or two, right? Yeah. And that's the rewrite process, right? Yeah. But it's interesting to this reverse engineering that you have to do for some plot points because, you know, your creativity juices are flowing, you're writing, you're writing. And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, that storyline for my, the C storyline needs a little more attention and to actually make the the comedy or this the other scene the final scene really kind of hit you have to kind of set it up better in previous scenes right then you start rewriting several scenes there's another thing that the uh, screenwriter is responsible for creating the characters You know, characters have to be unique. People want to see something fresh. You know, The Office and those kind of shows where they took a mundane place, but you have dynamic characters who fill it out. It's having characters that form this ensemble of characters that help push the plot and the story forward. You may also want to look at stock characters. We've talked about Commedia dell'arte. There's, you know, Shakespearean stock characters, uh, Greco-Roman stock characters, modern stock characters, the anti-hero, for instance. So you may want to refresh on the stock characters because, again, these characters have to fit in on a team. And the ensemble is is a little more complicated, mm-hmm. right? Which is, Porper did that. Greg Porper and uh, John Sh- uh, Shimke, they created this office of characters, very unique characters. Yes, yeah. very unique. Quirky. In, in fact, more unique than the office. Yeah, absolutely. The, Larry, the, uh, Keel Kennedy is just, uh, he's unbelievable in this. Uh, that's a teaser, folks. Go watch it for yourself. <laughs> but unique characters, but yet stock characters that fit into this overall plot ensemble, that's going to push the plot and the story to the end. Now, That was sort of the description of the traditional screenwriter. And I say this because it's important. People will ask, can I suggest music? We've talked about that. And usually the answer is no. You know, that's the music director's job. Uh, Same thing with camera angles. You know, we've been told when you write your screenplay, don't put in, you know, close-up shot here, establishing shot there, you know, quirky angle shot there. You know, that's for the cinematographer. Unless you're a director-rector and then... (laughs) Well, Spike Lee, we've talked about exceptions to every rule. Spike Lee, if you read some of his scripts, he puts in every last detail from the exact you know, song that he wants here and there to where he wants the camera. But that's Spike Lee. Also, if you're on an independent project or wearing many hats and you are the screenwriter, the music director and the cinematographer, then, you know, you can do that. But I just want to do uh, suggest a few things, because now that you know the basic hat that you're supposed to wear, and I've been doing this as part of my uh, 2024 uh, New Year's resolutions, I've been trying to find new stuff, you know, so if you have accidentals that come into your life, you know, a car that's parked in front of your house that 
doesn't get towed away. <laughs> you know, a new person that you meet, uh, you know, an encounter at the supermarket. Objects. Uh, we were talking during the break. I found these two Honer Superchromatica harmonicas. Very cool harmonicas. And they're beautiful harmonicas. Good condition. You, you got you got to steal on that. They're just two beautiful works of art. Yeah. And they sort of fell into my lap. But where am I going with this tangent? They're accidentals. Uh, a week ago, I wasn't even thinking chromatic harmonicas. Right. And then they fall into your lap. Yeah. So do those kind of things. Go someplace, you know, get a new object object. I'm always a big proponent of objects, props, right? You know, things you hold in your hand, baseball gloves, harmonicas, sunglasses. So is your next film going to be about about harmonicas? (laughs) Maybe. I actually am starting to play harmonica again and trying to kind of advance I play a little harmonica too, yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to do a theme, (laughs) new theme song for 2024. There we go. But anyway, let those kind of things come into your life. Also, Another thing I've been doing to expand, and again, my screenwriting, my actual writing, is going out and filming stuff. I've been doing short little videos. Nobody's, you know, sometimes I post them, sometimes I don't. I take little pictures, looking at stuff from a different angle. So I do that. You know, I go around and photograph an interesting bug or a plant or a rock. You know, just getting different visuals going that are going to help develop new ideas on on paper. Absolutely. It all comes back to the pen and paper or the keyboard and the computer screen. Hey, Raul Sandlin, you that's thank you for those tips. Those sure, are very, sure. very interesting. Now go out and write. Absolutely, we will. Hey, final thoughts is coming up, so please don't go away. You're listening to the San Diego Screenwriter Studio. We are just about to close the studio door. Final thoughts for the day. It is the 34th annual San Diego International Jewish Film Festival happening. It runs from January 31st through February 11th. Uh, that is happening. We want to send everybody up there to go see that at the San Diego Jewish Community Center. Absolutely. Yeah, San Diego has lots of local film festivals. So. That's right. And the San Diego International Film Festival. It's not until October, but they're doing something pretty novel. Yeah, right. This is this is very novel. <laughs> they are doing a an Academy Awards viewing party, right? Where you pay it's kind of expensive. It's two fifty a pop. But if you have an extra $250, you can walk the red carpet into one of San Diego's most exclusive Rancho Santa Fe private residence, right? Experience the glitz and the glam and cheer your favorite films on. It actually goes for a good cause, though. The money goes for the uh, the international uh, San Diego International Learning Program. And that happens Sunday, March 10th uh, for the Academy Awards. And speaking of the Academy Awards, boy, oh boy. A new Barbie controversy. Oh, my God. We talked a little bit about Barbie earlier, and I have issues with the film. I know it has a lot of fans. Many people love the script, love everything about it. I've had uh, brought up my issues, like I just did, about the ending and how I thought the ending could have been wrapped up by stacking the plot points a little more deliberately. But also, there's a new issue with Barbie, and that's because it's been snubbed for some key Oscars. Well, it hasn't actually been snubbed because it's what, how many did it get nominated for? Eight Eight. Oscars. And in comparison, Oppenheimer, which really is more of an Academy favorite type movie, it's a drama, it's historical, 
uh, it got 13. Right. So, so a kind of real Oscar-worthy uh, film got 13. And Barbie, which I will contend is still a summer teenage empowerment movie, much like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, usually is going to get snubbed at the Oscars. I know, but it was kind of an anti-patriarchal movie, feminist-driven. Uh, and what do they do? And the Oscar goes to Ken. The man, yeah, yeah, that was unbelievable. Uh, yeah, man. so so <laughs> let let's see if we get this right. Barbie wasn't completely snubbed. It got eight Oscar nominations, but who did get snubbed? The director, you know, the leading actress, unbelievable, the, leading, the yeah. supporting actress, and Ken uh, Ryan Gosling, right? Yes, got, yes. got got nominated for best, best actor. actor. Yeah, unbelievable. So, so a feminist film, and it's the guy who gets nominated. Yeah, for doesn't the Oscar. that doesn't that say it about everything we need to know about Hollywood? Okay, we'll see you next week on the San Diego Screenwriter Studio on San Diego's only Social Justice Network, KNSJ 89.1 FM. Oh, thank you.